If you uh, Google the words uh, dumb Canadian law, which I did this week, and you can do this at home, it turns out there's a whole whack of obscure bylaws and town ordinances. And just here's a sampler. So lawmakers in Etobicoke apparently are real um, big believers in bathtub safety, so much so that a local bylaw states that a bathtub should not be filled with more than three and a half inches of water. And as a bath guy, uh, I encourage them to just try that out even uh, because that's not, that's not a good bath. And uh, if you live in Kanata, Ontario, feel free to paint your garage any color you want, except purple, where apparently that's against the law. You will be fined. It might be why Prince never lived in Kanata. And then there's this still existing bylaw in Toronto that prohibits dragging a dead horse down Young Street on Sundays. Now, Monday to Saturday, knock yourself out. Uh, according to our Canadian criminal code, it is illegal to scare the queen. Uh, in Fredericton, it is illegal to wear a snake on your person inside the city limits. And in Alberta, it is absolutely illegal to set fire to someone's wooden leg. And if I know the good people of Alberta, there is a group right now that are complaining about their inherent right to set fire to someone's wooden leg. Uh, look, most of us don't like laws and not just dumb ones. Uh, a lot of times we don't even like reasonable ones, especially if they feel sort of enforced on us, imposed on us. Now you add laws to spirituality. Oof. That's, and you get words like legalism, judgmentalism, fundamentalism, you know, some of the most hated words on the planet. And we're going through this series called what if Jesus was serious? And if Jesus was serious about this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm it's a game changer. I could make the case that Matthew 517, our, our next verse, might be the most important verse in the Sermon on the Mount. It might be the most stupendous claim that Jesus has ever made. So we got to make sense of this verse if we're going to make sense of the rest of the sermon. Uh, actually, if we're going to make sense of the rest of the New Testament, no, no joke. So why don't we just read a bit what Jesus says and then we'll, we'll unpack it. Starting at verse 17 in chapter five, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if Jesus listeners at this time were wearing socks, this would blow their socks off. Uh, let me tell you why. First of all, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the law? 
Um, the law in the Bible, partly at least, is, has to do with the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, uh, we believe. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The actual Hebrew word for law in the Old Testament used 200 times is this word Torah, which means basically instructions on how to live that comes from a, uh, a higher authority. And uh, God's essentially saying, I'm your God, you're my people. Uh, here is a way of life that I'd like you to embrace. It's, it's really a model that was even for the rest of the world, it was supposed to be seen as a gift um, from God and an optimum way to live. The law is light so that you know what dark is. The 10 commandments, which of course all y'all know, that's a summary of the moral law, but there's also a bunch of um, ceremonial laws, which is how God wanted his people to worship. And there's a bunch of civil laws, which were how God wanted his people to be governed. And, and some of the laws, when you read the Old Testament, they seem like they're for all people at all times. Some of them um, seem like maybe they're just designed to apply to specific cultural moments, people and places. So by the time we get to Jesus, this is interesting. Something had happened over the years. The law was added to the religious establishment figured that the law needed laws. And, and so to the written law, they added what's known as, as the oral law or the unwritten law. Who, who was doing all of this? Who was adding to the law? They were known as the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. Okay. They're considered to be the holiest people of that day. And by the way, you don't criticize the Pharisees at this time. I, I realize the name has become a bit of a pejorative term. I used to sing in Sunday school. I don't want to be a Pharisee cause they're not fair. You see, um, but, but they were the most respected group of their day. And if anyone were to get into the kingdom by being righteous, it was, it was these people. So the common folk listening to Jesus never dreamed that they could equal much less surpass the righteousness of the Pharisee. Dang, we can't even come close. They're saying, in fact, uh, the Pharisees had taken the old Testament law with its 248 commandments and their 365 prohibitions, one for every day of the year, I guess. And they vowed to obey every single one of those 600 plus. And just so that they were clear on those rules, they made up rules about the rules, laws about the laws. In fact, they came up with 1500 of them, little extra rules. You're, okay. You're with me so far. Let me give you a couple examples of, of how this would have worked out back in the day. So to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, which of course was uh, in the written law, they refused to even say the name of God, uh, not in prayer, not in worship, you know, better safe than sorry to avoid committing adultery. They would lower their head every time they passed a woman. So they wouldn't even look at her uh, 
cause, you know, wherever that would lead in their, in their uh, actions, which is why the most holy of the holy Pharisees were known as bleeding Pharisees because they were lowering their heads so much. They kept walking into walls and, and running into other people. And so they'd have these bruises and gashes coming down. You'd see a bleeding Pharisee and you'd be, Oh, there must've been a supermodel convention, but that guy, that guy's killing it. Right. And when it came to resting on the Sabbath, for instance, which is in the written law, they decided they need to figure out like, how many steps you could take on, on the day without it turning into work. So for whatever arbitrary reason, they calculated that anything above 50 steps on the Sabbath was work. I mean, you, you don't even need a Fitbit to calculate that few steps. If you were a woman and you couldn't look in the mirror because you might see a gray hair And if you saw gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out and plucking out that gray hair was considered work on the Sabbath. You see how, you see how crazy this was. And Jesus hated, hated the way the Pharisees had made the law into something heavy and burdensome instead of something helpful and good. Now here he comes saying, I didn't come to, abolish the law and the prophets, which think about this is so radical in and of itself, because that sentence seems to imply that he could, if he wanted to, he could abolish 1300 years of law. I mean, he's only been teaching a few months now. Wasn't even a member of the Sanhedrin 30 years old. The law is 1300 years old what audacity to even suggest that he could abolish it. And so this is where we can really misunderstand him. And if you, if you do have your Bibles open, just underline that word fulfill in verse 17 to fulfill something means to complete it, to, to bring it to its goal. Right. And so this is why it's so sock rocking, Uh, because Jesus made this incredible claim. He said that he was the end. He was the crowning achievement. He was um, the completion of God's revelation to the human race. Wow. His teaching, his work, his life will fulfill or complete what God had revealed to that point. Every prophecy, every ceremonial system, every sacrifice in Jesus is all made complete. Was the sacrificial system fulfilled? Vicki? Yes, that is correct. Was, was there a perfect sinless once and for all final sacrifice? Yeah. His name was Jesus. Oh, but the moral law needs to be fulfilled too, because no person in history had truly perfectly kept it until yeah, the perfect sinless life of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. Frankly, I don't think I have the stomach for it. And, and Jesus, you were the final perfect sinless sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to worship in a temple through a high priest in Jerusalem 
because Jesus has become our high priest and he set up a temple in our hearts and on and on it goes. Um, Everything that the law and the prophets stood for said about God, taught about God came into full meaning when God became flesh and walked the earth in the person of Jesus. It'll change how you read the old Testament Uh, through Jesus. We see the law and the prophets come alive, but listen, Jesus is inaugurating a new era at this moment. Okay. Where the law would no longer be the guiding principle for the kingdom of God, not because it, it wasn't valid or good, but because it was being fulfilled, fulfilled in their presence. It would ultimately be fulfilled on a, on a cross a couple years later. And it's important to remember this too, that this was actually God's plan all along. Okay. The apostle Paul tells us that the law was actually a temporary measure from the start in Galatians three nineteen, It says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Okay. The law was a parenthesis in the history of salvation. Granted, it was a 1300 year parentheses, but the gospel is, is actually first announced to Abraham. Abraham, God said, you'll be justified by Glenn. Faith. Yeah. The opposite faith. And then the law comes 430 years later out of necessity, but it's a parenthesis in the salvation plan. One that ended on a hill in Calvary. Now something new is being introduced here, not because the old thing was bad, right? But because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished or fulfilled Jesus says, I've got some great news, everybody. The, the old covenant, which was perfect, I've come to wrap it up, put a bow on it. Not that it's wrong. I'm just inaugurating something even better. And, and Jesus, you got to remember, is not another member in a long line of wise men and prophets. He's the end of the line. Okay. I understand that this is uh, confusing, Right because Jesus is living in, in sort of both worlds at the same time. He's, he's trying to land one plane while another plane is taking off, right? Between the old and the new, there's this overlap of the, of the two covenants. Let me, if I can try to explain using an Andy Stanley illustration, I don't think he'd mind. I know he's a big fan of, of this podcast. Hi, Andy, if you're watching, um, Remember when you got your current cell phone? Okay, so this is my iPhone uh, 10. They call it the XR. You know, 30 seconds after I took possession of this iPhone XR, um, do you know what I referred my iPhone 8 as? The one that I had just walked into the store with 30 seconds ago, the one that had just been on my bedside table the night before. Um, It now became my old phone, right? Not because it suddenly got antiquated, not even because it, it was 
necessarily something wrong with it, but because I was replacing it with something new, something, something better. And I'll just bet that you don't carry around both your old phone and your new phone. Okay. You don't, you don't blend your phones together. In fact, let me prove it to you. Uh, where is your previous cell phone? Maybe you sold it back to Apple. Maybe you gave it to one of your kids. Maybe it's sitting in a drawer somewhere, right? Um, it's not bad. It's just kind of become obsolete. Okay, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Did the pastor of a Christian evangelical church just say that the law, the Old Testament is obsolete? That would get a lot of pastors fired. It may get me fired. I don't know. But ironically, it's what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. Um, if, if you even check your Bible in Hebrews 8, 13, here's what it says. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete will soon disappear. Uh, to be clear, obsolete doesn't mean bad. Obsolete means something new and better has come along. I don't know if you millennials know what, what this is. So, so, you know, Gen X and older will remember like putting a pencil in here, trying to get the tape part in. Cassettes aren't bad. Try to play one though. It, it, they become obsolete and it doesn't mean that um, the Old Testament isn't inspired or useful. It's not, it hasn't become less the word of God. We're just not under its obligations anymore. Right now, some of you are putting me in a box. I know you are. You're saying that is some liberal, progressive, unorthodox, heretical. Nuh-uh. I am a, I'm a Bible guy. Okay. I'm just quoting to you what the Bible says about the Bible, what Jesus himself is saying about the Bible, about the law, about the old Testament specifically. Now here's what we tend to do even to this day. In fact, uh, this was the, maybe the biggest issue for new Testament writers, you know, talking to other Christians, we try to blend the old with the new and you can't, you can't. The old and the new covenants are not compatible. They're not blendable. They are sequential. Now, and this is where my iPhone analogy sort of falls apart because, um, you know, my iPhone XR was an update from the iPhone eight. And one day, you know, I'll get it, maybe an iPhone 11, which will be an update from my XR. And Jesus actually steps into history to introduce something entirely new, right? He didn't come to offer a slightly updated version. This is not, you know, Judaism 2.0. This is not something a little bit better by degrees. This is what we would call a paradigm shift. Okay. Jesus was sent by the father to establish a new covenant. 
a new command, a new movement. And his movement is now going to be international. It's going to be for all people. I'm not suggesting that the two Testaments are not equally inspired. My point is, is that they're not equally applicable. Um, So what is this new thing that Jesus is inaugurating? Well, in verse 20, he says, if you don't do better than the legalists, the law followers, the, the rule keepers, the sin patrol people, you won't even catch a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. Now be careful here because this new thing that Jesus is introducing is not about sort of outdoing the Pharisees. Oh, maybe we should only do 49 steps instead of 50. Um, because if all God is to you is a series of do's and don'ts, oh man, you missed it. You missed it. And, and we're all so vulnerable to this, aren't we? It's easy to fall into sort of legalistic set of rules to try and appear spiritual, gain acceptance from God, to care more about our appearance and our reputation than what's really going on inside our heart. Sometimes I fear like that's what Western Christianity has, has come down to. Authentic Christ following Christianity is not about whether you have a glass of wine or a craft beer or whether you think someone else should or listening to the right radio station or voting for the right political party. It's not about whether you watch Tiger King or get a tattoo, Leela. Yeah. In fact, here's the truth. Um, You know, you can keep all 10 of the 10 commandments perfectly and be a terrible husband and be a terrible father and a terrible employer and a rotten friend Because the Old Testament law is kind of like any other law. It sort of just tells you how low you can go before you get into trouble, right? Jesus comes along and says, no, I I want to inspire you to go way beyond the lowest bar. I want you to honor people. I want you to put others first. I want you to serve others, be self-controlled, love your enemies, Um, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. That's why when the Pharisees later, they try to, they try to catch Jesus in a gotcha moment, right? They say, Jesus, why don't you summarize the law for us? And they're thinking, is he going to add to the 1500 laws? Is he going to take away from the 600 written laws? And this is what Jesus said. Here's the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. That's the law. That's it. And if you truly love God and if you truly love people, you don't need everything spelled out because you would never do anything to betray that love. Is there a greater law than that? a greater guidance than that. Love God, love others, love as I have loved you. That's the law fulfilled. 
let me close our time by, by telling you about the Apostle Paul. Don't come up yet, Ben, because this is one of those pastor things where I say, let me close our time. And there's really like, you know, seven more minutes. Think about this. Paul is an expert in the old. Okay. Yet he does more to clarify the new than anyone other than Jesus. So here's what he says. You want to talk law? Okay. I was the greatest Pharisee lawkeeper of them all. Nobody understands the old better than me. And I'm telling you, you cannot mix and match. You cannot blend the two together. You say goodbye to one. You say hello to the other. Okay. The old is backstory to the greatest story. So let me read his words. He says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew. If there ever was one, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Again, Paul's saying, you want to measure religiosity? I, I used to out-religion all y'all, okay? Y you can't out-Torah me. Let's keep reading in, in Philippians. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. He's fired up here, folks. He uses actually a very edgy term. And at least in the Greek language, translating the word into garbage is accurate, sort of. Um, but it's kind of the tame version. It's kind of the churchy version. The word Paul uses here is skuvala. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Skuvala. And it's the word for manure or dung. Um, you know a bit about manure and, and dung, uh, Matt. Yeah, good farmer, Matt. He knows about it. But skuvala, it turns out, was kind of the street slang for manure or dung. So, you know, not to be too crass about it, but there would have been bumper stickers on the back of camels back then that said, you know, skuvala happens, right? And, and if you were answering a dumb question you would have said like, yeah, no Scuvala, Sherlock. And let's just say <laughs> when it comes to that word, there's a Scuvala load of applications I could make, but it's a harsh word. And maybe Paul wants to get your attention because uh, it's an issue we keep bumping our head up against even 2000 years later. According to Paul, everything connected with religion is worthless. Okay. 
garbage. Only he didn't say garbage. He says his own good works for all those years. Garbage. Because it was just an external righteousness. The godliness of the Pharisees of which Paul was one. All about appearances, right? What people could see, what they could be impressed with. Um, When they gave, they wanted trumpets. When they prayed, they wanted an audience. When they fasted, they wanted to make sure it was obvious. It was, it was like religious exhibitionism. And what's so ironic and what's so humbling is that our righteousness in this new covenant is actually better than the Pharisees. First, because, and here's the fancy word, because it is imputed to us. That means Christ credits to us his righteousness. Once you abandon this idea that your goodness, uh, all your volunteering, all your good works are going to save you. And instead you just put your trust in Jesus. Uh, It's at that point, God sees Jesus perfect righteousness in you. And isn't that awesome? Uh, So if you are in Christ this morning, uh, the obligation of the law disappears. You are not on the hook to uphold them. You are not obliged to sacrifice lambs in your worship. Thank goodness. You're not under the dietary restrictions of the law. Uh, Bacon is good. Bacon almost makes me want to burst into how great thou art. Okay. And Paul says, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Sounds easy, right? Yay. Actually, turns out the bar is a lot higher. The cost of discipleship is greater. Love asks a lot of us. A rules approach would say, you know, do not murder easy. You just, you just don't have to physically take someone's life. But Jesus says, Hey, could we have um, a conversation about your anger? Um, Could we start with this hate that you seem to have in your heart? And the law keeper says, you know, don't commit adultery. And by that, what I mean is don't physically sleep with someone else's spouse. And Jesus actually raises the bar. He says, Hey, could we talk about your lust for a minute? Could we talk about um, what you're viewing online and just be honest about where adultery actually begins? Could we kind of look at your inner world for a moment? I want to invite the band to come now. And I just remind you that a standard of righteousness that never crossed the minds of Pharisees is an integrated righteousness. Okay. A righteousness that happens in public and in private before men, before God, Jesus is after an inside out faith. Okay. The law written on our hearts, Jesus, thank you that you have fulfilled the requirements of the law through your perfect life, through your perfect sacrifice. 
In fact, Jesus, you were the only one who could do it. Moses gave the law, but he couldn't fulfill it. David loved the law, but he couldn't fulfill it. You know, the prophets upheld the law. They couldn't fulfill it. The Levites, group of Israelites who carried out the law, they could never fulfill it. The Pharisees, they argued the law. They added to the law. They could never fulfill it. I've tried. I'll be honest with you. I've tried by my righteousness, my so-called good works to gain favor with God. I can't fulfill it. I just can't. But Moses himself, do you know that he promised in Deuteronomy that God would raise one up who would fulfill this law fully and completely. And Jesus did it. He did it. It was a promise that that Jesus kept. In fact, when he cried out, it is finished. It is finished. It, It was a promise that he kept. He kept his word. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you fulfilled what we couldn't that you give your righteousness. You credit it to us. You inaugurated something new 2,000 years ago. And by faith, Lord, we receive it today. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you.